If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. It is too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men. Now, that, now will you try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Thus ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It is that time of year when we hear the word virgin a lot. In church, in the mall, on greeting cards, this rather quaint and now politically incorrect word is suddenly in vogue again. Truth be known, we don't talk much about virgins these days, except in derogatory ways. Recall the 2005 movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, starring Steve Carroll. Not a movie about the virtue of purity, but a comedy about someone who reaches middle age and has never had sex. The movie's subtext is clear. What could be stranger or more pathetic than that? This morning, I want to remind you how that word virgin entered the Christmas story with the help of a prophecy written by Isaiah 800 years before the birth of Jesus. He makes a prediction about a savior for the nation of Judah, who is in exile and under siege from her enemies in the northern kingdom and Syria. He writes a single line which leads to perhaps the most controversial mistranslation in the Bible. It gives Matthew the cover he is looking for, a prediction by Israel's greatest prophet of the virgin birth of Jesus which Matthew creates 80 to 90 years after that same Jesus was born. Matthew, as you all know, was always looking to the Hebrew scripture for predictions that Jesus was the Messiah, and they saw him coming. Read his gospel, and it seems like every other line is, this was done to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophets, because that's how you convince reluctant Jews to accept Jesus. When Matthew writes the story of the virgin birth of Jesus, which does not appear in Mark, the earliest gospel by some decades, he quotes Isaiah 714, 
All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew has all this come to Joseph in a dream, whose purpose is to cover an obvious scandal. Joseph is betrothed to a teenage girl who is pregnant out of wedlock. And if you think that's a scandal today, imagine it in the first century. Or if you think a simple mistranslation cannot alter the future of Christendom and our whole conception, no pun intended, of what it means to be faithful, then please consider this. When Matthew speaks of a virgin who shall conceive and bear a son, he is using the incorrect Greek translation of the Hebrew word Alma. That word used by Isaiah and then mistranslated in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, does not mean virgin. It means only a young woman. A young woman, writes Isaiah, is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Notice that Isaiah is not talking at all about the circumstances of conception. He is not talking about how this young woman became pregnant because we know how that happens. She is with child, and as Bishop Spong puts it, where I come from, if you are with child, that means you are not a virgin. And remember, Isaiah writes this prediction eight centuries before the birth of Jesus. So consider how strange it would be to predict the virgin birth of a savior 800 years in the future. That is one long pregnancy. And so when the Hebrew word Alma, or young woman, gets translated as Parthenos in the Greek Old Testament, which does mean virgin, it is wrong, wrong. That is the wrong translation, and all scholars agree that it's wrong. But Matthew needs this translation to be right, because in his gospel, Joseph is actually the primary character, not Mary. She's simply introduced as a virgin betrothed to Joseph and found to be with child before they live together. So Matthew adds that she is with child from the Holy Spirit. Some scholars have wondered if perhaps there were some ugly rumors floating around about the patronage of Jesus. And so this is Matthew's answer. An unnamed angel comes to Joseph, who is described as a just man, who plans to divorce his unfaithful fiancée so as not to shame her. And then the angel tells him that this is not the child of another man, but the child of the Holy Spirit which, by the way, led one renowned feminist theologian to say, oh, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, is that what they call it now? He is even told that he can name the child Jesus. So just consider what this accomplishes in a patriarchal society. Her reputation is salvaged, she has a male protector, and the father gets to name the child. This would be probably a good time to remind you of what some scholars also believe that Joseph himself is a literary fiction, introduced to clean up a real mess concerning the birth of the central figure in human history. When the dream ends and the angel departs, Matthew does his Matthew thing and says, 
All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Then, and perhaps the most revealing line in the story, comes next about purity and why it is so important in that society. Matthew writes, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son and he named him Jesus. Now you may be wondering, Robin, uh, on Christmas Sunday, why, why bring up this controversy? Let's just sing our glorias and read our Christmas cards and drink our eggnog and re-gift any unwanted fruitcakes we receive <laughs> or bury them in the backyard, whatever. But remember, this is the distinctive and amazing thing about this pulpit. We tell you the other side of the story and then you get to decide. And make no mistake, this famous or infamous mistranslation has given the church heartburn for centuries. If you Google mistranslation of Isaiah 714, your computer will be flooded with arguments meant to convince you that what appears problematic is really not. The apologetics are contorted to put it mildly, one of my favorite ones came from an evangelical preacher who said simply that even though the Hebrew word Alma does indeed mean a young woman and not a virgin, this does not mean that Isaiah was not talking about a virgin because most young women in those days were virgins. Well, if you make that argument in my critical thinking class, you fail for the simple reason that there was a Hebrew word available to Isaiah, which did mean virgin, Bethula. So if Israel's greatest prophet meant to predict the virgin birth of a savior 800 years before it happened, then he should have used the word that means virgin, not a word that would keep us guessing for centuries whether his Hebrew vocabulary was deficient. When the Old Testament gets translated into Greek, which is the language of the gospel writers, Matthew read the word parthenos, which does mean virgin, and the rest, as they say, is sacred history, not to be confused with journalism. This is why actually studying the Bible is so subversive. Few Christian doctrines are as tightly held as the chaste conception of Jesus by a woman who is considered pure by virtue of never having known a man. So when scholars began to correct this mistranslation and they changed the English translation of Isaiah 7:14 from virgin, as it appears in the King James Version, to a young woman in subsequent versions, a storm broke. When the revised standard version of the Bible appeared in 1952, and used the correct English translation, young woman, instead of virgin, Protestant fundamentalists burned copies of the RSV on church lawns. Protestant fundamentalists burned copies of the Bible because of this one mistranslation. And then one Baptist preacher railed, this has been the dream of modernists for centuries, to make Jesus Christ the son of a bad woman. Now, let's just stop for a moment and think about that. That comment speaks volumes 
about what so many people believe about God, about redemption, and especially about women. Since we know how little control women have today over when and with whom they have sex, just imagine the situation in the time of Mary. There was no Me Too movement in first century Palestine. Besides, no one would have believed her anyway. What's more, perhaps the most important thing I ever learned from the late Marcus Borg was that to understand the radical message of Jesus, you have to understand that what dominated the religious thinking of the Jewish people in the time of Jesus was purity, purity. The heart of religion for Israel, Borg said, was this, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, which really meant be pure as God is pure. And how does one maintain purity? By refraining from behaviors that bring one into contact with what is impure. Various kinds of food, for example, or eating with unclean hands, or most important perhaps, by refraining from association with unclean people, which included not just the enemies of the Jewish people, aka all Gentiles, but those who had fallen from various orders of life, from the purity and the grace of God by virtue of being incomplete, physically or spiritually, including mental illness, the diseased, those without body parts, and yes, once a month, women, if you catch my drift. Jesus changed the major premise of religion itself when he conducted his ministry based on a completely different idea. Not be holy as God is holy, but be compassionate as God is compassionate. According to Jesus, it's not about remaining pure and clean and in good standing with your judgmental neighbors, but it is exactly the opposite. We are to go out to make deliberate contact with the impure, to tell them that they may think they are permanently outside the realm of the love of God, but God says they are not. Then the church was born as a collection of what were considered dirty people who worshiped an unclean God. That's exactly right. No wonder they crucified Jesus. It was not for the things he said so much as it was for the, the company he kept. If Jesus were alive this morning, he would not be at the mall. He would have been in no danger in the recent shooting because he wouldn't have been there. He would have been at the homeless shelter. He would have been at the welfare office. He would be in prison with those who've made terrible mistakes but are still human beings. He would be at what we used to call homes for unwed mothers, perhaps out of sympathy for his own mother. The beautiful but contrived story about the birth of Jesus is meant to make his mother pure and to make him pure. But guess what? When someone asks me why I have never believed in the virgin birth as a literal biological fact, I always tell them because if the origins of Jesus are imperfect, even scandalous, it is a much, much, much better story. Not only was the claim that someone was born of a virgin commonplace in the time of Jesus, all the Caesars, for example, were called virgin-born sons of God, if that sounds familiar. 
But to make that claim about a penniless rabbi from a backwater town like Nazareth is the church's answer, almost their lampoon of the claim that only great and powerful people were virgin born. They took this ancient metaphor about what it means to be born of the spirit and not of the flesh and they made it about their Lord. What's more, we have no record, none, of Jesus ever telling anyone that he came into the world any differently than you or I did. Nor does he even once explain to his disciples that he can walk on water because he is half man, half God. Or say, now don't try this at home if you have a human father. Jesus is not an alien. He is our brother. And that, my friends, is why we cannot make excuses for not loving as he loved, or trying to heal as he healed, or empty ourselves in service to radical hospitality like he did. And that's why Christmas is not a fairy tale. It's not an implausible biological claim. It's a story of unbelievable redemption. God working through the mess the world is in, not around it, or to put it simply, the incarnation is no workaround. I, for one, am much more interested in what the baby said when the baby grew up than I am interested in arguing over the divine purity of the baby or the immaculate conception of his mother, a doctrine, by the way, the church had to suddenly invent in the 15th century when the microscope was invented and we discovered that women contribute half the DNA to their children, and that meant Mary had to be miraculously conceived or she could have passed down original sin to Jesus. What's more, our time desperately needs this kind of intellectual honesty in the church because women who find themselves in the desperate circumstances that Mary found herself in are all around us, not only in those who come to our southern border, looking, by the way, much more like the mother of Jesus than, say, female anchors at Fox News, just to sharpen the image by comparison, but also the real people who live next door to us, and know that life can be a mess, a tragedy, a dark web of abuse and deception. And if people of faith can't help to redeem the bloody mess this world is in, then what good is their faith? I'm wishing you a no alien Christmas. Instead, I'm hoping that your brother Jesus comes to you in the middle of the night as a radically disturbing presence and you wake up realizing you have too much stuff and not enough compassion. That would be the real miracle. For me, the, the more unlikely the, the real story about the birth of Jesus is, the more powerful it is, complete with his family tree of misfits, prostitutes, and half-breeds. I mean, that's no way to save the world. What kind of pedigree is that, his critics must have said. Or wait a minute, maybe that's the only way to save the world, since that's the world we live in and no other. Let's not scrub it up, add perfume, and then turn it into a Hallmark card. It can be dirty and messy and apparently also never completely outside the reach of God's love.
Speaking of Christmas cards, our daughter Chelsea sent out her cards this year with one of the best lines on it I have ever read. Now granted, this is my daughter, so I can't be totally objective here, <laughs> but I know this was Chelsea's small act of defiance. Here's what she wrote. May you have a perfectly imperfect Christmas. That is exactly what I wish for all of you, a perfectly imperfect Christmas. May you be drawn in the darkness this week toward the light, and may you experience the holy mystery that is a God coming to us, not from the outside, not from somewhere far away from this beautiful, terrible, wonderful world, but gloriously mixed up in it. Not a God of purity, but a God of pure compassion, the ground of our being, not the sky God of our salvation. And as we sing our hearts out this morning, this Christmas music that we love, let's celebrate a God who has come to us in the form of someone too much like us to ignore and too different from us to ever forget. Now that, that calls for some glorias. Uh, maybe even a little Latin thrown in like in Excelsius Deo. Do you know any hymns that have glorias and a little Latin? Oh wait. It's right here in our hymnal, page 125. Angels we have heard on high, including the angels that are sitting right next to you. So we better get up and sing this like we mean it. Ready? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.